Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. Now this morning's message is titled Parenting by God, and I asked them to kind of make it look like a book cover. And I, you know, I was the queen of reading parenting resources from the moment I found out I was pregnant. Um, 20 years ago, I have an almost 19-year-old girl, and so roughly 20 years ago, I picked up my first parenting book ever, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Anybody know this old school book? And then I had What to Expect the first year, and I, I was determined I was going to be the best parent in the whole world from the outset. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, I already kind of knew I would kill this thing as called parenting. I was, to be honest, the best parent who had ever parented before I had parented. Anybody else relate, right? Um, so I dove into all of these resources, all of these books, and I, I really have done that the entire time that I'm parenting. I'm a reader. I'm a nerd. So I like to research things. I like to ask questions. I like to I like anthropology. I like studying the human psychology and all of these things. I love the scripture. So I really set out to know, God, I want to help my kids. I want to know. And can I tell you that a lot of the resources that I learned in the beginning days Biblical resources that had lots of Bible truths and teachings, I would no longer recommend, say, oh, me. That even in my efforts to be the best parent ever, somehow I stumbled because I missed the heart of God in all of it. Sometimes we come to the scripture. I think there is a book on parenting, and it's called the Bible, right? Um, and, and there's great parenting resources out there. However, I think sometimes we come to the scripture like it's going to give us an answer book of what to do and not to do. And I really think we're missing it when we do that. We make it the letter or the law instead of understanding the heart behind it. See, I'm less impressed with what the scripture says for us to do and more about what the scripture is trying to tell us about who God is. The scripture is really meant to reveal the heart of God to us. And so when we come to this topic, we come with fear and trembling. I come with fear and trembling because I realize there's been a lot of advice given to parents that's just bad advice. If you've ever received bad parenting advice, say, oh, yeah. And we start this out the gate. Can I tell you, as, your, as, as someone in leadership, could I ask you, please, stop discouraging new parents from how hard this is going to be, okay? Let them have their moment. I see all these parents look like me. I, I literally had a couple that had just had a baby said I was the first person that told them something exciting. This is the best time of their life. That everybody's like, oh, just wait. I'm like, really? Why, guys? Why we feel the need to do this and let them enjoy this. But you're going to get a lot of advice. And really, there's a lot of advice out there. But to me, the most important critical opinion that matters is God's. What does it actually say? He is the ultimate parent. He is Father God. I love that Jesus called him Father God. Father God. He said, my father. And so really, if we want to know how to mother, how to father, the best example is God himself. Can I get an amen? God himself. So looking at, so what would it look like if God wrote a parenting 
book. And so we're going to look at who God is, and I'm going to talk to you about some pendulum swings in parenting styles, because I really think even generationally, like again, everybody thinks they're going to be the best parent before they have kids. Um, and I heard, I read something that says, as soon as you say, my child would never, here they come nevering like they never, never before, right? Like they're going to humble you. But there's pendulum swings in parenting styles. Let's open up in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to show you what I mean. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out. Beware. Can you say beware? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now that should be underlined there. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. As this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you not know or understand yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? In other words, guys, this is not about bread, okay? This is a metaphor, right? I'm not talking about loaves of bread. You saw me. I just provided, you know, um, uh, chips and fish just a few minutes ago, right? It's not about bread. He's saying beware. He's warning them about something that, that... of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and so this was the, um, this was the, the law or legalism. This was the Pharisees. But then on the other side, you have Herod, who was very immoral. This was loose living. This was the party lifestyle, worldliness. Okay, so he's saying beware of the leaven of this. Now, what does leaven stand for? In Matthew 16, we find out what leaven means when Jesus says it. Why can't you understand I'm not talking about bread? So I say again, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's interesting Jesus actually warns more against the yeast of the Pharisees than of Herod. He warns more about the yeast of religion than worldliness. That's something to consider. Verse 12, then at last they understood he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Teaching is what he means by yeast. So he's saying, I want to warn you about two extremes in teaching. The teaching of the Pharisees, this is legalism, and the teaching of Herod, which is worldliness. Can you put that, that, that uh, screen up there? The teaching of the Pharisees versus Herod, legalism versus worldliness, or if we bring this down to parenting, there's usually two types of books that books tend to swing or advice tends to swing one side to the other. Authoritative, hard parenting, domineering, controlling parenting, y'all hearing me? Or permissive parenting, ah, whatever you want, free, free parenting, okay? And so typically, there's a swing back and forth. Or, if you read in the scriptures, do not add or subtract to the scriptures. You could see this as adding to God's word or subtracting to God's word. Now, so most parents either swing to one end of the pendulum or the other. And I would guess that even in your house, there's a yes parent and there's a no parent. If you're a yes parent, raise your hand up. In that. Uh, come on, just confession is good for the soul. If you're the no parent, you're the bad, you're the bad cop in the, in the relationship, right? You're the, the bad. So most of us, even within the home, swing. Now, if I can get all of your attention back, I want to take you somewhere pretty kind of cool. I want you to think about even generationally, at least in American culture. This is just kind of American culture. 
Even the parenting style among American culture has done a pendulum swing through generations. For instance, my grandparents came from the greatest generation, okay? And they were very much this hard-nosed, Pharisee, legalistic, authoritative parenting. I remember hearing my grandfather say, children are to be seen and not heard. I remember him talking about how hard we should be spanked. I remember talking about, I remember seeing him being scared that he would spank me because of the, the, how hard he spanked, right? And not, I'm just, just telling you this is a very authoritative parenting at this stage. And as a matter of fact, most parents that were born, most of the, peop- the children that were born with this greatest generation parenting have really now, if they disciplined like those parents, we would almost call it abuse. It was very hard-nosed, very control-based, control the behavior, Right? But what happens is the greatest generation birthed what became baby boomers who were the hippies. Come on, we have any hippies, hippie generation? Come on. Yeah, all right, okay, raise your hand proud. Now, what this did, usually when we have a parent injury, what we do typically is we react versus respond. So what this control and fear-based parenting did is produce a whole generation of, you can't tell us what to do, revolt, stick it to the man, right? And then this free parenting, this free permissive, we're not doing to our kids what you did to us, free parenting, which produced the latchkey generation, which is my generation, okay? Latchkey, if you haven't heard, from, heard about this, essentially it just meant your parents left a key at the door, <laughs> and you could go do what you want, just be back before dark, right? Anybody heard that? Just do what you want, be back before dark, be back by dinner, right? And so this generation really it was, came from um, the, the, this, uh, and I'm not, these are generalities, of course, there's exceptions to this, but for the most part, a working generation, kids were kind of raised by themselves, they were left alone a whole lot of time, and so the lack of teaching, the lack of guidance, and sometimes even the neglect produced a fear. So I know for me in particular, the lack of guidance, the lack of teaching, and even some of the, you know, the, that absence of, of guidance actually produced harm in me. I was injured in certain ways that I wanted to be parented. So guess what the latchkey generation did? <laughs> yes, you guessed it. None of you guessed it. You're supposed to guess it. They swung, right? We swung to this, which became the helicopter generation. And so with all our Gen Z kids, we're hovering. We're at every single game. We can't even miss one. Every single birthday party from 1 to 18 has to be a major bash. Perfect Pinterest party, right? All of our kids' outfit, like hovering parenting, right? Hovering over every detail. They have to get it. They have to be in every sport from the time. If your kid is not in softball, by the time they're two and a half, they're just behind. It's too late, right? It's the over-parenting over here again. Which, if you'll notice in Gen Z what it's producing, another Gen Z revolt. You can't tell us what to do. Just, you see what I'm saying? It's repeating it all over again. You're not our, do you see this? All we're doing is swinging from one extreme to the other. We're reacting instead of responding. And Jesus said, beware of both of this teaching. So if we want to know the heart of God here, it's not to-dos, it's not just reacting, it's responding, going to Scripture and realizing that it's not either or, it's both and. Do you hear me? It's grace and truth. 
It's both. It's the love of God and the boundaries of God. It's both. But we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we've been hurt by improper parenting. Now, I want to also encourage you as we get into this that we want to keep the goal in mind for parenting. And what is the goal? I remember when the Lord told me several years back, Melody, you're too short-sighted in your goal in parenting. I was like, what do you mean by that? You're parenting to make sure you have an 18-year-old kid that graduates with great grades, gets into a good college, and is pure at marriage. That doesn't have anything go wrong in high school, doesn't embarrass you in high school. You're parenting too short-sighted. That's not the end goal of parenting. The parenting, the goal should be 30, 40, 50, 60, a child that loves God, that's a contribution to society, that loves people. Do you hear me? an autonomous adult. We're thinking too short-sighted. And so when we think short-sighted, what we do, and we're hyper-fixated on these things are being perfect instead of knowing the heart of God, what happens is we end up unintentionally hurting our kids. I've never met a parent yet that I've met that wanted to, to injure their child. Most are like me. They genuinely are trying. But I'm telling you, just trying, if you hear the wrong advice, could still be detrimental. So we have to go to the heart of God. Let me explain to you a few normal phases of development with children. The first that, that you might not be prepared for, because right now I know Zion's sitting here and she's just the sweetest little thing ever in the whole wide world, and we're going to let them enjoy this little sweetest thing ever in the whole wide world stage right now, right? And nobody's going to say things like, just you wait, right? Can we agree that we're not saying those things to new parents, right? Sweetest thing ever. But what I didn't understand with my four children, I have one that's turning 19 and, the, and one that's just turned 17. What I didn't understand with my first two guinea pigs is there is a very normal, healthy stage of development called the terrible twos. And everybody just go ahead and groan, moan, slap somebody. I mean, yes, it's hard, right? And so when the first time my child began to have tantrums, my sweet little loved, loved everything about her started to have tantrums, I took it personal. I thought, what am I doing wrong? Oh, my gosh, I'm raising somebody who's going to be a murderer. <laughs> I failed to see this is a normal, healthy stage of independence. So what the child is doing around two is they realize, hey, I'm separate from mom. I'm separate from dad. Can, do I have to listen to mom? Do I have to listen to dad? Can I touch this? I'm going to touch it. Yep, I'm going to touch it. Can I put my, my foot over this? I'm going to do it. I'm going to throw a tantrum. They're testing boundaries to see. It's a stage of autonomy. It's their first really independent stage they're venturing out to. It is normal. It is healthy. It is not wrong. You are not a bad parent. Amen? And so after a couple more kids, I start to realize, oh, <laughs> that's normal. And so now I, I had fun with it. With my last two, my, you know, especially with my fourth she got into the tantrum stage, and so I'd let her tantrum, and then I'd look at her, and I'd say, okay, now I want you to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was irrational. That was irrational, you know. We laughed about it. It was because I, because I didn't take it so personal. I realized this is normal, this is healthy. But in case no one's ever told you this, parents of kids under 12, they're going to go through that independent stage again. Come around the time 12 years old, here it comes back. In case you didn't know this, the terrible twos repeat themselves at around the age of 12, and it's called the terrible teens, okay? Listen, the same thing is happening. It's not wrong. It's normal. It's healthy. It's autonomy. 
they suddenly start realizing I'm separate from mom and dad. Is that my God? Do I believe in Christianity? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I want to go to church? Do I want to wear that? I like this hairstyle. I like this music. Do you see this? They're separating themselves from you. There's a normal, healthy stage of experimenting with rebellion, experimenting with separateness. You would have thought that I would have learned the lesson in toddler years. I didn't. My teens get there. I have a freak out. What is wrong? Is she going to be a murderer? Right? I didn't really think that, but I'm just being string. Hyperbole here. But again, I start freaking out as most first parents do, not understanding this is normal. This is healthy. God designed this. This is a time when they are discovering who they are. If you've ever had a ball that you take that's filled with air and you try to push it underneath water, can you hold that down forever? You can hold it down for a little while, but what's it going to do if you push it down too far? back up over here. And what I have discovered is that parents that do not allow their children with boundaries, with rules still, to have a normal, healthy amount of this individuality at toddler stage and at teenage stage, they're only delaying the inevitable. They might have a squeaky queen, clean, squeaky queen, <laughs> squeaky clean all the way to 18 experience. But man, in their 30s, in their marriage, all that rebellion, they're still rebelling against their parents at 30, even though the child is not even aware that's what they're doing. Rebelling against authority, rebelling, they're stuck in a stage they never got to experience as a teenager. Do you hear me? Because we're designed to go through it. Even Jesus, at 12 years old, started to press the boundary of what's God's authority and his parents' authority when they thought he should be with him, and where is he at? He's in the temple. This is normal. This is healthy. We're designed to walk through these years with them, alongside them, not just control them and suppress their behavior. We have to help them to find their separateness with us. It's like an inoculation or a vaccine. I give my ch- Why do we give vaccines? I give a small amount of the sickness to the, ch- to the person so that if they're ever exposed to a large quantity, their immune systems are ready for it. Do you hear me? If I take my child completely out of temptation, completely out of conflict, completely out of disagreement with others, then what's going to happen is at 20, 30, when they're no longer able to be under my direct supervision, that's going to overwhelm their system. They are going to go crazy. But if I allow it while I'm there and I walk through, if I allow them to fail, if I allow them to struggle, if I allow them all of this, then it's teaching them, and they're strong, so when I'm not there, they've had exposure to it. Are y'all, are y'all, if y'all follow me, say, okay. All right, all right. So I want to look at the heart of God as we go into what's it like to parent like God. And I want to tell you, first of all, how much God really loves children. Um, in Luke, it says this, that one day the parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. So Jesus called the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these little children. In other words, children are not a nuisance. They're not just to be seen and not heard. They're not half humans. I see people all of the time. You know, we can see this in uh, you know, obviously teachers, coaches, listen, again, this is to sharpen, to refine us. Parents, that we will talk to a child, the tone in which we talk to them, the place in which we talk to them, and the things we say to them, we would never say to an adult. Why is it okay to say it to a child? 
They're not half humans. The same dignity adult deserves, a child deserves. And Jesus seems to be very, very protective over kids. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 18, verse 5, it says this, Anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it'd be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, 10, beware that you don't look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, listen, they're angels. That means they have assigned angels are in the presence of my heavenly father. Why it's so important to be guarded as to what we say and how we treat kids around us. And some of you, you're not a parent, but you're in the sphere of kids. You might be a teacher. You might be a coach. You might be in children's ministry. Or you might be a teenage brother or sister. Can I tell you that when a child says that something hurts or something's bothering them, we should listen. As if we would if an adult told us that. And a mistake would be to say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Just get over it. Because to a child, it is a big deal. Now, why is it so important that we watch what we say and do with kids? Because kids are like clay. And so good and bad memories, the same memory, something could happen to you outside. You could get, you could get in a wreck today and get hurt, and you'd get over it mentally and emotionally. But if a child got in a wreck and was hurt at five and six years old, that might damage them in a way that wouldn't damage us. Why? Because it makes a deeper impression. They're still moldable. So things we say, things we do, when a child says this, I, all of the time I hear parent, kids, adult kids trying to reconcile with their, with their parents, and the parent will refuse to admit that that could have really, you're, 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 dramatic, you're being dramatic, it didn't happen that way. Listen, it's not healing. Repentance is how we get healing. It's being willing to admit, maybe this did make a bigger impression on my child than I realized, because their brains and hearts were still being formed. They're not half humans. We have to be careful with what we say. We have to listen and have the heart of God when we approach parenting. So I want to show you that a parent who parents in God's image, what they're going to look like to their child. And I'm going to tell you that the first four, I'm going to give you quickly five, the first four are temporary jobs. You have a temp job as a parent. Turn to the person next to you and tell them parenting is a temp job. Can I tell you this is not discussed enough in church or even outside church? We see these kids are mine, an extension of me. I'm going to draw on my investment. My kids are my emotional retirement fund. You owe me. Do you see, me? You see what I'm saying? Kids, adult, have their own families, have their own kids, and we're still trying to parent and mother and father our kids. Listen, this has an expiration date. Mothering and fathering has a shelf life. And so the first four of these, you're going to see us move through them through early childhood from about zero to mid-20s. But really, we're anchoring in a goal. Only the fifth one, we stay forever in this role as parents. I'm going to show you this biblically. Let's look at what, how God parents us and what our kids need from us. The first thing that we need to be to our child is a protector. Galatians 4.1 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, so he's talking about if somebody inherits money here, a child does, he's no different from a servant, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In other words, guardians and managers. As parents, we see ourselves, we should see ourselves as guardians and managers, not owners of the child. It's God's child. And they have the same inheritance as a full child. 
But we help guard and manage their resources. I'm protecting them. So that guarding, I'm guarding them from risks. I'm protecting them from risks that they can't yet see. And so part of this protecting them is that a guardian is there to protect the child from dangers without and dangers within. Dangers without and dangers within. So I have a a reasonable responsibility as a parent to make sure my child is safe from outward threats And I will include in this the culture. Do you hear me? Outward threats, not just physical threats, soulish threats, emotional threats. I have a reasonable. Some of you like, I got this in a bag. I'm mama bear. You mess with my kid and watch. Right? Without, but also dangers from within. Sometimes one of the biggest risks to the child is the child themselves. And so it's not love to not give boundaries and truth. Do you hear me? It's not love not to discipline. If I don't help, I love that word guardian and managers. I'm helping them manage themselves. I'm helping them. It's discipline. This is what God is asking us to do. In Hebrews 12, 11, if God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you're illegitimate and he's not, you're not really his children at all. And so some parents have a tendency to over-discipline, but some, because maybe they were hurt by over-discipline, they underdiscipline, and they don't give any protection to the child, and they actually leave the child at more risk because they're not realizing, hey, I'm the parent. They're the child. I can see things they can't see, even in themselves. And so we have a job to discipline. Now, how, um, when we discipline, understand that there's a goal in mind, and it's the child's peace. It says this, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, can you say afterward? There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. We protect the child from dangers without and dangers within through discipline. Now, I don't have time to go into this a lot. You can read the book Boundaries with Kids, which is phenomenal, biblical, very solid, biblical, biblically based. But we call this reality-based discipline. If you want to see how does God parent us, it's reality-based discipline. Even in Deuteronomy, he sets forth and he says, if you do these things, you'll have all these blessings come upon you. If you do these things, you'll have all these curses come upon you. Now, before you think God is like the parent that's like, you do this or else I'll do this. You know, I don't know who, that sounds like a grandpa, but I don't know. Before you think that's what it is, it's actually just directional. Hey, You want these blessings? Here's the way to that. But watch out. If you go this way, here's all the consequences. So reality-based parenting is making sure they understand the risks, providing a reasonable protection, but to some degree letting them feel the sting of going the wrong way for themselves without rescuing them. And I don't have to do this. So, for instance, a child at 10 p.m., on Tuesday night says, Mom, my project's due tomorrow. I need glue. I have a hard time believing your teacher just told you about this project at 10 o'clock tonight on a Tuesday. Nope, no, two weeks ago, but I forgot. Oh, guess you're going to have to find something to put your project together. Do you see this? Maybe letting them get a bad grade. Why? That's reality-based parenting. Otherwise, if I bail my child, now, if it's a one-time thing, maybe you first go in, but if you see this a pattern of character where they're doing something, you're hurting them by intercepting the consequence because one day mom won't be able to catch all the balls that they're dropping. And so we have to let reality be their friend, 
not rescuing, not coming in and intercepting when their teacher is mean to them, reasonably, if the teacher's really crazy, get involved. But if you feel, you know why? Because they're going to have a boss that's an idiot one day. And you're not going to be able to rescue them from that. We have to let them have reality. And so we can do this if we'll really get good at this, at just laying the consequences out for them, letting them choose for themselves, not intercepting and rescuing them, then really it doesn't even have to be emotional. It does eliminate a lot of the screaming, the fighting, the counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, half a 1, right? All of that nonsense. And honestly, it's more fair to the child. It's not fair to the child to not know at what point is mom going to issue the consequence. Is she having a good day, bad day? How much can I get away with this? How many chances do I get? And then mom blows up. That's unfair. Consistency of here's the consequence, here's the reality, and you choose. Choose for yourself this day, God says. Now, can I get an amen? Right? Do you see this? This is a whole lot easier to preach about than to actually do. I'm just going to say that, right? <laughs> Number two. We're called to be providers, providers for them. In 2 Corinthians 12, 14, I'm coming to you for the third time. I will not be a burden to you. I don't want what you have. I want you. This should be the heart of us toward our kids. I don't want what you have, baby. I want you. I don't need you to fulfill some dream I had in my life that I never got fulfilled and me live vicariously through you. I don't need you to prove to all my friends what a good parent I am by behaving. Come on, y'all. I don't want what you have. I want you. I want you. After all, children don't provide for their parents. Rather, parents provide for their children. So we should take care of their basic resources, managing their resources for them, their time, talent, treasure, helping them to steward those appropriately in a way that will help them when they're older. But we should all prov also provide emotional needs for them. Again, this can happen really subtly. It happened with me that I can look at my kids and think, oh, I'll get the family I wish I had when I was young, and I hyperfix. You know, sometimes I've watched parents that are codependent on their children. They never release that kid into adulthood, not because the kid needs it, because the parent needs it. The parent doesn't know how to let go. The parent has fixated on this child. And so, but remember, it's not the child's job to be the parent. It's your job to be the parent. And so we provide, we protect, we also teach. In Ephesians 6, it talks about children obeying the parents and, and fathers don't exacerbate your kids. And it says to honor your parents in the Lord. Can I tell you that the time to be the teacher, though, as we see that more and more of this we're going to grow out of being their sole provider, being their sole protector, that's gonna, our job is going to get hopefully get less and less as they go. It's the same thing with being the teacher. Anybody ever been around a kid that's in the 20 questions phase, right? All they do all day long is ask questions. Mom, 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 why is this? Well, why is that? What does that mean? Where does that go? When does she do that? Where does she come from? Why do they say that? Why do they look like that? I don't know. I remember, I remember having the conversation with a friend like, I feel like I am a teacher 24-7. Can I tell you, that is the time to teach them. Because their hearts are soft. They want your teaching. But if we're honest, a lot of us, we're busy, and that's just a nuisance right now. We'd much rather go into autopilot in our own world and stick an iPad in front of their face, come on, than to truly get in their world and actually teach them. Because guess what? That clay is hardening. And a lot of us, if we're honest, we forget to be a teacher in this stage when they want it. 
and we wait until they're way over here in this stage, and they don't want our teaching anymore. But suddenly, we're going to tell them how they should dress, how they should live. Listen, all those lessons really should have been done back here. We've kind of almost lost our window and our right by this point. Y'all quiet in this room. Teacher, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. But this word honor, it says to, this means in the Greek to estimate or to fix the value. When it says honor your parent, it doesn't mean, oh, everything mom says is right, right? What it does mean is I have a, is I, ha- I can estimate her value. I see that she loves me. I see that she sacrificed for me. And when people give me advice, if I really honor my mom, her, her, her advice is weighted heavier because I honor, I have a fix, a fixed her value, that she, she loves me, she's in my corner, she's, she's lived a life I haven't lived yet, and so I'm going to give her more honor and more weight. Do you see that? But it also talks about fathers in the same passage not exacerbating their children. So what this means, this is about mutual respect, mutual honor between the child and the adult. Do you know that before a child or an adult is 25, that the prefrontal cortex of their brain is not fully developed? The prefrontal cortex of your brain actually is the part of the brain that assesses risks, that can assess long-term risk and consequence. Okay, so... That part of your brain is not fully developed until you're 25, which I think is ironic because you make most of your critical life decisions, foundational life decisions between 18 and 25 when you're still brain damaged. And at the point when you don't want to hear from your parents anymore because you're pushing off toward autonomy. Why? Why? I think I know. I think it's about honor. I think it's about humility. I think it's about the parent having to stand down and be like God and instead of advising the kid and forcing their advice down their throats, being like God and just waiting for them to come ask. Being humble enough to pray for them and just wait. And if they ask, tenderly giving advice. Do you hear me? And about the kid having to humble themselves and be like, it really hurts to ask mom this, but uh, what would you do? Yeah, Right? It's about honor and mutual that we're going to honor one another, that we need one another in this stage of life. It's a crazy stage of life because they're not a full adult and they're not a full child. If you've been confused as a parent with a teenage kid, I can tell you the teenager is just as confused. Why? Because they, are they adult? Are they a child? Are they a child? Are they adult? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. They're both existing at the same time and we need one another. But in order for us to really have an iron sharp and iron relationship, it requires humility. It requires trust and honor, mutual honor and respect. Do y'all see this? This is what it means to be a teacher, not to shove every life lesson down their throat. The fourth thing we're called to be is a comforter and a counselor. Now, before you get excited about being your child's counselor and comforter, comforter comes easy for a lot of mamas. We want to nurture, right? Unless we're trying to teach them to be real tough and we're like, you fine, get up. Right? All right? There's a reasonable amount of comfort and counsel that we should be offering our kids, though. And when I say comfort, you know, it talks about the Holy Spirit being our comforter who walks alongside of us. Do you know that a child can't really, especially early on, they can't really separate their emotion from who they are? And so when they come to us with these bigger-than-life emotions, part of our job is what we call containment, where we take the child's emotion, we hold it, 
We comfort them until they're okay. And then we dish back out things so they can handle it in reasonable portions. We don't dismiss their feelings. We don't tell them to get over it. We don't tell them to suck it up. We don't quote a Bible verse about how they need to be better. We let them grieve. You're teaching them how to grieve. To go through that whole cycle, you, you listen, you love. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. He comforts us. But he also counsels us. He says he's a wonderful counselor. Can I tell you what a wonderful counselor does? Two things. They listen and ask questions. Listen and ask questions. The biggest piece of advice I could give you if you have teenagers is don't give them the answers. Listen and ask questions. This is what God does to us. Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? To Hagar, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? Do you think he's asking these questions because he doesn't know the answers? He's a wonderful counselor. Tell me about that. What does that feel? Man, I'm really sorry. You're showing empathy. You're showing compassion. They don't necessarily need your advice every time they come to you broken. They just need your comfort. They just need your, your containment. Do we see this? He's a, he's a wonderful counselor and comforter. He's a friend. And then the last thing is this. This is what we're graduating to as they get older. We become an intercessor and eventually a friend. An intercessor is a fancy word, spiritual word, for a prayer warrior. Do you know that it says that Jesus sits right now at the right hand of the Father always praying for us? And this is one role we will never outgrow. As long as my babies are my babies, I'm going to be a praying mama. I don't have to tell them I'm praying for them, but still on the regular to this day, since I have been pregnant, I have done this. I'll get up on a whim. Something inside of me is stirring. I know i got to get up and pray for my baby. Up at 3 o'clock in the morning, praying, crying out for my kid. Listen, this is a part of your role. Jesus does it for us. We should be praying for our children, praying for our kids. And then eventually, hopefully, if we steward this relationship right, we become their friend. Notice I said we become their friend. We start out the guardian, the protector, the teacher. Then we start moving into counselor and comforter. And then we go into intercessor and friend. Do you see this? It progresses as they get older. But they may not want to be your friend if you ain't friendly. I'm experiencing this now. I told my oldest daughter, who is halfway across the world now, I told her, I want to do this right. You're my first adult kid. And I recognize that when I get a text from Eden, my tendency is to mother her the same way I've always mothered her. And the Lord's been challenging me to filter it through, would I say this to a friend? Would I say this? Would I counsel a friend in this way? And to treat her more like a friend in this stage and less like my baby that doesn't know anything, I'm going to mother her. Do you see that? But I also said on the flip side, I'm going to need you to not treat me like your mother. In my response, oh, mom, right? We're moving into mutual respect and friendship. But I also recognize if I want my kids to be friend with me, friends with me, I got to be the kind of friend they'd want to hang around. A friend that's humble, that's not trying to mother them or dominate them or make them feel like I'm the one up. I'm, you owe me. I know better than you the rest of their lives, right? It's mutual respect, mutual honor. And so I want to show you this picture as we get ready to close. I hope you're getting something out of this. But this is a picture that I want to show you how really what we're going toward in the age gap. So this is a sliding scale, age zero here, newborn stage, age of 12 when they hit adolescence, and the degree of dependency. And then I'm going to place this. This is just my estimate. It could be wrong. Mid-20s or at marriage, would be the goal would be a completely separate, autonomous adult by this phase. 
This means mom and pop are no longer my financial provider in any way by this age. Uh Uh-oh. To the degree you still need your mom and dad is the degree you're still a child. I'm going to say that again. To the degree you still need mom and pop is the degree you're still a child. By, oh, keep that up there. By this point, because marriage, even if you ain't got a fully formed brain, you did it to yourself, right? I was 19 and married because the Bible says leave and cleave. So by this point, we're financially secure. We're on our own. We're not calling mom and dad to bail us out. I'm not also bringing mom to be my counselor and teacher in my marriage. Come on. It's just going to cause issues. I'm also, if I'm old enough to have babies, realize I'm old enough to be responsible for my babies. My mom was already up in the middle of the night with me. It's my turn now. It's not my mama's job to raise her grandbabies. She already raised her kid. That's my job now. Come on. Now, if she wants to, because see, what happens is we like all the freedoms. We don't want the responsibility, though. But that's not how adulthood works. It's always proportional. Freedoms are proportional responsibility. But on the other side, Grandma, you already raised your kids. You don't get to tell your daughter how to raise her kids. You got your turn. Now it's her turn. And so there has to be a mutual respect and a mutual honor of separateness. And so what happens, we see this Zion is three months old. Right now she's age zero. She's completely dependent on mom and dad, isn't she? Everything. She doesn't get to say she has no freedom and no responsibility. She doesn't get to say when she eats. She doesn't get to say what she wears. She doesn't get to say where she goes. She has no freedoms, no responsibility, and she's completely dependent on mom and dad. But as she ages, this is her freedoms and her dependency are going to start to come toward the center. It's going to heighten, get real interesting around this age right here. And then the goal is by the time we're either married or in your mid-20s when your brain is finally developed, that you no longer need mama to be your provider, your protector, your teacher, your counselor. Jesus has now taken over that role, y'all. John said this. In chapter 3, verse 30, his disciples come to him and they said, Jesus, Jesus, you got to, I mean, John, John, you got to stop them. People are leaving us and going to Jesus. John says, no, 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 you don't understand. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. That's a picture of what we're doing as parenting. The goal is not to point them to us. The goal is to point them to him. Remember that verse I shared in the beginning, the teaching of John the Baptist, that's what's going to return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. What is when Jesus becomes greater and greater and we become less and less. It's not about how good of a mama or daddy I am. It's about how good of a daddy he is. It's about his fathering. He becomes greater and we're okay with that. We're okay with that because they were his all along. They weren't ours. 1 Corinthians, it says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became an adult, I put away childish things. Some of you in this room here, you're struggling because it's kind of like the end of pregnancy. Any woman who's ever been pregnant knows about that eighth, ninth month. You don't care about anything. It's a big eviction notice for this kid. Everything gets so uncomfortable. The baby is so big, I can't breathe, I can't sit down. 
I can't eat. I don't want to eat. I can't sleep. I'm miserable. I just let my gum fall on the floor. I don't care, right? The baby's also uncomfortable. And listen, if there's tension right now with teens, adult kid, adultish kids, it's because it's normal. There's an eviction notice, y'all, coming. Both are feeling that, hey, we're two separate people and it's time to separate. That's normal. That's healthy. And you're going to feel an increase in tension the further pregnant you get, launching them into full adulthood. The more tension that will be, and it's, the tension itself is not bad. It's by design because God always wanted them to be separate from you and dependent on him. Do you hear me? You can stay their intercessor. Hopefully, they'll let you be their friend. But they're God's. Maybe right now you recognize, I've got some wounds, man. This wasn't done right with me. And I want to tell you that any of these needs you did not get, if you didn't get containment, you didn't get compassion, you didn't get counseling from your parents, maybe you didn't get instruction, maybe you didn't get discipline. Can I tell you, the Lord wants to father you. He wants to heal that. And maybe you're a parent like me and you're like, oh, whoa, I really miss this. Can I tell you, I've had phone calls, sips, coffee, sitting across from my kids. Baby, I need to apologize to you. I made a mistake. I thought I was helping you, and I realized I injured you. Will you please forgive me? You know, I, I think one of the most harmful things when parents and children are trying, adult children are trying to reconcile is when the parent is just dismissive and is like, that didn't happen. I think there needs to be a reasonable amount of humility to say, I want to hear your heart, and I want to make right anything I might have hurt you with. And that both are willing to listen and to heal. Do you see God's heart is to restore it's not, it's not to hurt us. It's to restore. This week I have had my hip keeps popping out of, like, it's moving. and spasming, and it's keeping me up at night. So I have a friend who does PT, and she's coming in, and she fixes the misalignment, the upslip. She pops it back in. But then she has to come in with her elbow and stick it in my rear end and all the spots that are spasming around that. And she says she's doing it gently, but I, I promise if there's a camera in my house, she looks like one of those WWE wrestlers, and she's running and, like, sticking that elbow. That's what it feels like to me. But according to her, she's got to stick it there and hold pressure on the spasm, or else if it keeps spasming, the hip's just going to come out of socket again. And so it's a cycle. And I'm going to tell you, if there's been a misalignment in your family dynamic and you recognize it now because we've not been parented like God wanted us to be parent, parented, or maybe we have not parented as God wanted us to. We feel the pain. The Lord just wants to pop that back into place. It's not for condemning. It's just to get it back in. Get it back in right alignment. And I'm going to ask you to do something during worship. That I want you to let the Holy Spirit put pressure on the spasm. Because here's what's going to happen. Condemnation and guilt. Or bitterness and anger. Mom did this. Dad did this. Can I tell you, listen, on this end, we're all going to be parents one day. And can I ask you to give grace to your mom and daddy? And to let the grace of God hold pressure right now as we process this this weekend during worship. Let the grace of God just hold pressure on the parts that are spasming. Just hold pressure the grace that it's okay because your father makes up for every deficit that your mother and father left. 
I recognize that even when I wasn't the mother that I wanted or needed to be to my kids, the Lord has always been the father that he should be to them. That, this, that even in my weaknesses, I'm able to point to him. I didn't, but he is good. Do you see this? My weaknesses, it's not about my mother and how great I am. It's about how great he is and that he can heal. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iHeartChurch.com. Dot online. We love you and have a great day.